Welcome to the Highland Sermon Podcast, where we share with you the sermons that are preached by the pastors at Highland Community Church in Kokato, Minnesota. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the podcast so that you will be notified when new episodes are available. Let's get into this week's message. Isaiah chapter 63 this morning, that's where we're going to be. If you've got your copy of God's Word, go ahead and get it open to Isaiah chapter 63. Well, we love to sing about and we love to talk about Jesus fighting for us. We love to talk about how Jesus is our divine warrior, but we aren't necessarily people who love to talk about war. War is bloody. It's violent combat. War is destructive. War ravages people's homes and livelihoods. I keep getting messages from our friends in Ukraine talking about the horrors that they face every time that the bomb sirens go off. But it would be rather strange, I believe, to talk about Jesus being our divine warrior if he never actually went to war. It would be weird to say that Jesus fights my battles if Jesus never actually fights. If there were no battles, why would we talk about the battles that Jesus fights on our behalf? There is, in fact, an actual battle happening. It's described in Isaiah chapter 63. It's a passage we're going to be looking at this morning, but the battle we're going to be talking about happens off screen. It's already over before Isaiah begins talking about it. And that's why the title of this morning's message is The Divine Warrior's Post-Fight Interview. It's already over. It's already done. We're talking about something that's already happened. This section in Isaiah chapter 63 is quite a contrast to what we've just been talking about. For the last several weeks in chapters 60 to 62, as we've walked through this series in Isaiah, we've talked about how Jesus is preparing a new creation city, the new Jerusalem, for God's people. We've talked about the glory and the wonder of the new creation, and now all of a sudden we get blood and gore and violence, and how does Isaiah make that leap? How do we get here? Well, in order to understand, you have to understand the outline of Isaiah. You have to understand what Isaiah is doing in the totality of the book that he's written. And so we've already said that Isaiah has three main sections, and we're in the third and final section of his book, chapters 56 through 66. But to understand what's happening in that section, we have to break it down even further. And there are actually three sections in this final section of Isaiah 56 to 66. And so let me kind of give you that outline, and then you'll understand maybe how this section fits in. So Isaiah 56 to 66 can be broken down into three units, uh, chapters 56 to 59, or section 1, then 60 to 62, which we've already looked at. And now we're beginning the third and final section, chapters 63 through 66. And this section of Isaiah is arranged in a word that literature students love to talk about, theology professors love to talk about it. You might not have heard this word, but we'll try and break it down for you this morning. It's called a chiasm, and here's what a chiasm is. It, it takes parallel points on the front end and the back end, and the parallel points line up with each other. So you have parallel point, parallel point, parallel point. You have as many parallel points as you want. In this case, we have two sets of parallel points, and then in the middle of this structure, there's a center, center point that is unparalleled. 
and the unparalleled center point is the central point. It's the most important thing that the author wants to convey. So let's kind of see how this plays out in our section. Well, Isaiah 56 kicks off section one of this final part by talking about how nations are welcomed into the people of God. And then section one concludes in chapter 59 by God putting on the divine warrior's armor to fight for his people. Uh, Jump ahead to section 3, and you can see how this flips. In chapter 63 that we're going to be looking at this morning, God's wearing the clothes of the divine warrior, and he has fought for his people. And chapter 66, kind of the climax and culmination of his book, shows that the nations are fully welcomed and incorporated into the people of God. So do you see how you kind of have this like V thing? It's like they, they parallel, but then in the middle is that major central section, which is the New Jerusalem city God's prepared for his people. So we're walking out of the New Jerusalem section into this section about God being the divine warrior. And how does that all play out? Well, here's what's going on. In order for God's people to live in the purified place that God has prepared for his people, evil has to get removed. There can't be any impurity or any unrighteousness left in the place where God is going to live forever with his people. And the only way that evil and unrighteousness is going to get out is for God to snuff it out. And so the divine warrior's final act of preparing New Jerusalem is to get rid of evil finally, fully, and forever. And so the question being answered about the new creation is, what happens to the people who reject what Jesus has done? What happens to the people who hate God and want to live their own way? To the people who want to do their own thing? What happens to the people who want nothing to do with God? And the answer is, one day, God will deal with them. One day, the people who oppress God's people, who work against God's people, will be dealt with. This is great news for those of you who have faced hard things and hard people in life. See, the point that Isaiah is trying to convey is this. The bully gets his way until someone stronger than the bully comes in and deals with the bully. And that's what's happening here in this passage. So maybe if I tell you a story about when I was in school, that'll help us understand what's going on here. So I went to school with a young guy, and his name was Eric. Now, he told us it was pronounced Eric, but when we saw the spelling, his parents actually spelled his name with the letter A batting leadoff. And so it was literally A, and he tacked a K on at the end, so it was literally A-Rick, and so that's what we called him. And A-Rick was bigger and stronger than all of the rest of us. I think he had been held back a year, and so even by eighth grade, he was about 6'3 and 225 and, and built. So... I used to, you know, sit around and make power rankings of my classmates and determine, you know, uh, on a scale of one to quality human being, like how, how did my classmates rank? And, and Eric was always the bottom of this list. Like he was just a horrible human being. And some of you are like, that sounds like you're being pretty harsh to this guy. Well, what if I told you that just a few years ago he went to prison for the rest of his life because in a drug-induced rage he murdered his wife in front of their kids? Like that's the kind of person he was. And you're like, what was it like to go to school with that guy? Well, let me tell you what it was like to go to school with that guy. When we were in eighth grade, we were sitting in class on the third story of our old school building, 
And you remember those pencil boxes where you used to keep all your supplies? And if you were like me, you had a Superman uh, sticker on your pencil box. But if you were really cool, you had a New Kids on the Block sticker on your school box. Well, there was a young girl in our class, and Eric decided that he was going to just do something to have fun that day. So he grabbed her pencil box and he went over and opened the window of the third story classroom and just dumped all of her supplies out the window. By the time we got to high school, his favorite thing to do was during lunch in the cafeteria to go around and grab food off kids' trays and throw the food all around the cafeteria, oftentimes just throwing it directly into their face. And everyone wished that somebody would deal with Eric. Because he was terrorizing the school cafeteria. But none of us thought that we were big enough or strong enough to deal with Eric. And so day after day, he was chucking food around the cafeteria. Until one day. See, one day, our varsity football coach, Dick James, had lunch duty. And when he was the lunch monitor that day, he saw Eric get up. And do what he always did. And he was grabbing food off of kids' trays. And he was throwing the food all around. And he leaned back to throw the food. But this time, I saw a whir come flying across the cafeteria. And it was Coach James. And he was having none of Eric. And so he lifted the child up with a perfectly executed form tackle. And he planted him into the table so hard that you heard the table smash. And so embarrassed was this young kid that he got up out of the crunched table and he ran out the emergency exit door and ran home and dropped out of school and never returned. See, when the bully gets dealt with, the people rejoice because they no longer have to deal with that drama. See, I don't know what Eric you're dealing with. I don't know what person has been causing you drama for months or years, or even decades. I don't know what your situation is like at work, and I don't know what your situation is like at home, but I know that when you're facing someone who is in opposition to you, who is hurting you and harming you, you are looking for a Coach James to come and deal with the Eric in your life. And that is what Jesus, our divine warrior, does for us, and that is what this section is all about. And so Isaiah is going to unpack this section by answering three questions. Two questions directly in the text. Who, you see that there in verse 1. Why, you see that there in verse 2. And then the question implicit in the text that we're also going to answer is where. And so we're going to answer those first two questions, who and where, in our first two outline points. And then we're going to jump to our third and final point. So let's begin answering our first two questions from just verse 1. Let's read it together. Who is this who comes from Edom? In crimson garments from Basra, he was splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Isaiah is playing with the imagery that he set up in chapter 62, verse 6. And in Isaiah 62, 6, he talked about watchmen watching on the walls. And so the idea here in chapter 63, verse 1, is that there's a watchman walk, watching on the walls, and he sees this figure approaching from the east. And as this person comes near, the question, the watchman on the wall must be wondering is, who is this? Is this friend or foe? 
And right in the text, you see that the watchman notices three things about this person. The first thing he notices is that the clothes of this person are red. And the second thing he notices is that the clothes are splendid. Now, when it says the clothes are splendid, it doesn't mean that he's sporting luxury Giorgio Armani threads. It means that he's clothed in the threads of victory. So he's just walking around like, yep, got that done. Because that's what the next thing tells us. Do you see it there? It says he's marching in the greatness of his strength. Now, I love that. Because he's returning from battle, right? But he's not limping. He's not bleeding. He's not even breathing heavy. He's just like, another one bit the dust. Took care of that one. And so as this person comes near, the watchman asks him the key question. Who are you? And do you see the answer there at the end of verse 1? It is I. God's name throughout the Hebrew Old Testament, Yahweh. I am who I am. When Jesus calmed the storm for his disciples, remember that scene when he came to them walking on the water? And they were terrified, thinking they, they were seeing a ghost. They're like, who are you? Who are you? And he said, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. When the words spoken in Scripture are, it is I, with no context, the idea is that this person's telling you that they're God. They're claiming to be divine. What's he doing? He's speaking in righteousness from the first words of Genesis chapter 1 to the final chapters of Revelation. God speaks and history is changed. It is I speaking in righteousness. And then just to confirm that this is God himself, those final words, mighty to save. Listen to what the prophet Zephaniah writes in Zephaniah chapter 3. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Who is the Lord your God? The one who is mighty to save. And so when this person shows up and says, I am mighty to save, he is claiming to be the one who accomplishes the role that only God can fulfill. So what is this divine warrior doing? Well, the next question will help us answer that. And the next question is, where's the divine warrior coming from? And it says here in verse 1, he's coming from Edom and from Basra. Now that's basically the same thing because Basra was the capital city of Edom. Edom was a nation southeast of Israel. It was populated by descendants of Esau. Now the word Edom literally means red. Remember how Esau was a red, hairy guy who sold his inheritance to his brother Jacob. And so there was like some some enmity and some hatred built up between Jacob and Esau. And that hatred and enmity spilled over into the descendants of Jacob and Esau. So Jacob and his descendants were in Israel and kind of next door in Edom were the descendants of Esau. And well, they, they, they didn't get along super well. See, here's why the divine warrior is returning from Edom. Throughout the Bible, Edom becomes a symbolic nation. Just like Babylon is a symbolic nation. Remember in this series, I've told you that uh, when you see the word Babylon in Scripture, it means more than the empire of Babylon. It's symbolic of every nation that rejects God, that wants to build their own glory, that wants to be worshipped, 
that wants to decide for themselves what is right or wrong. Babylon is that symbol of self-sufficiency and pride and not needing, not wanting the Lord. Well, Edom's a symbol all throughout the Bible too, and every time Edom pops up in the Bible, it's not just this one little nation, it's a symbol of any nation, any group of people, any person who hates the people of God. Because the defining feature of Edom was that they hated God's people. It started way back in the days of Moses. When Moses was leading God's people toward the promised land in Numbers chapter 20, God's people were journeying towards the place where God wanted to put them, and they needed to travel through the land of Edom. So Moses goes to the king of Edom, and he's like, hey, can we walk through your land to get to where we're going? And, and here's what the king of Edom did. Uh, says, but he said, you shall not pass through. And Edom came out against them with a large army and with a strong force. Like, no, not only can you not pass through, but um, we're actually going to come fight against you. And then Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory, so Israel turned away. So there was enmity that had been built up for generations. Now, this continued year after year after decade after century because Edom was a small nation so Edom was kind of like a mooch of a nation. They couldn't do much on their own, so they kind of attached themselves like a parasite to a big, strong world empire, and so they could get the glory that came from being connected to these world empires. So the first dominant world empire that, is, uh, that Edom decided to mooch off of was Assyria. And so Assyria conquered the northern part of God's kingdom. Uh, remember when Israel kind of split in half and there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom? And so Assyria wiped out the northern kingdom and then they attacked the southern kingdom. And when Assyria attacked the southern kingdom in 701 BC, they conquered a few of the cities on the outskirts of Judah, the southern kingdom. And people from Edom just kind of came and moved in. They're like, yeah, we'll take that city. We'll take that land. And they were just kind of destroying God's people and taking their stuff. It got way worse when the next world empire, Babylon, came around. Remember, Babylon was the nation that God used to judge his people for their idolatry and their wickedness. And Babylon is the one who raised Jerusalem to the ground, sent God's people into exile. And when Babylon burned Jerusalem to the ground, Edom was standing there cheerleading. And Edom was celebrating the destruction of God's people. In fact, uh, it's written about in the Psalms. So let's check out Psalm 137, and here's what it says in verse 7. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites in the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. Now, I mean, literally, if the worst day of your life occurred, and there were some people over on the sidelines, you're like, yeah, crush them, yeah, kill them. You're like, I just got fired from my job. And somebody's like, yeah, fire them. And you're like, my family fell apart. And they're like, yeah, a family be destroyed. Like, you're not going to like that person, right? And, and, and that's the deal. Edom, for generations, was known as this evil group of people cheerleading every failure and every destruction and every devastation of the people of God. In fact, so evil was the nation of Edom, the, the prophet Amos tells us that they participated in um, human trafficking or the selling of slaves. So you can imagine that God's people, having been dealing with that nation for years, was wondering, okay, God, when are you going to deal with this? God, when are you going to deal with these horrible people 
who are hurting us and harming us and celebrating every bad thing that happens to us. Because a God who lets his people get oppressed and bullied without end wouldn't be much of a strong God, would he? But our God is not a powerless God. And our God is not a weak God. And though we might suffer, and though we might be hurt, and though we might be harmed, our God says that will not endure forever because one day God is gonna show up and he's gonna set all things right. And in order to set all things right, he has to get rid of everything and everyone who is wrong. And so we live in a world of Edoms, but one day God will deal with every Edom on this planet. We live in a world of Edoms. Edom looks a little bit like Sudan where Christians are killed raped, driven from their home because they named the name of Jesus. Edom looks a little bit like Finland, where a pastor published a book defending the traditional understanding of the Christian sexual ethic, and they pressed criminal charges and tried to throw this pastor in prison. Edom looks a lot bit like China. A few years ago, a pastor from China was interviewed, and he said, In America, you send your pastors to seminary to prepare for ministry. In China, to prepare for ministry, we send our pastors to prison. And can you just imagine the people of God crying out, God, when are you going to deal with this? And God's people are crying out the prayer of Psalm chapter 74. And listen to this prayer. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. God's people are allowed to pray and ask God to deal with evil and unrighteous people. It is good and it is right to ask God to remove evil. You're like, it sounds so mean. Like, is it really okay for me to say, God, crush my enemies? Absolutely, it's okay, because when we're saying, God, crush my enemies, here's what we're really praying. We're saying, God, I'm not the one in control. I'm not responsible for avenging myself. I'm not the one responsible to get revenge for the things that have happened to me. God, I'm putting this in your hands. That's why we sang the song this morning. So when I fight, I fight on my knees, because I'm asking God to fight my battle for me. And here is what I'm saying. God, drive my enemies off this planet so that they no longer pollute your good creation or deal with them in another way. Because there's another way God deals with his enemies. God may crush his enemies or he may, in place of crushing his enemies, crush his son. Because every sin will be dealt with. And some sins are dealt with when Jesus is crushed on the cross in place of a sinful human being. And some sin will be crushed when those who reject that sacrifice face God's wrath on the final day. And it's that final day that's being described here in Isaiah. And it is okay for us to pray, God, your kingdom come. God, bring about that day of the Lord. God, we want you to set things right by removing that which is wrong. Good news, one day God will deal with every Edom. 
Throughout Scripture, God prophesies against Edom, and the prophecy is against the nation near Israel, and it's also about every Edom that would oppress the people of God. Let me give you three representative prophecies throughout the Old Testament that show how God will one day deal with Edom, because I want you to get a flavor of understanding of how God's going to deal with Edom. So here's the first one, Obadiah. Short little book in the Old Testament, just one chapter. Check out a couple verses from Obadiah. Here's what it says, first three verses, and then we're gonna skip ahead and look at verse 10. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. Like the book of Obadiah, that's all it's about. It's about God dealing with Edom. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise up against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks, in your lofty dwelling. Edom was a red nation. Its mountains were red. It had these red cliffs that surrounded it, and the, and the population was in the center. And the defining geographical feature of Edom was that it would be really hard for an enemy to invade because if they climbed up the mountains, they were going to have to jump off the cliffs to get to the people of Edom. And it made for a pretty awesome natural defense. And so the people of Edom were like, you can't touch me. God's like, you think I can't touch you? Check this out. You who say in your heart who will bring me to the ground, here's what it says in Obadiah verse 10. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. But it's not just Obadiah. Check out what the prophet Ezekiel says in Ezekiel chapter 35. And you shall know that I am the Lord. I've heard all the revilings that you uttered against the mountains of Israel, saying, they are laid desolate, they are given us to devour. And you magnified yourselves against me with your mouth and multiplied your words against me, I heard it. Thus says the Lord God, while the whole earth rejoices, I will make you desolate. As you rejoiced over the inheritance of the house of Israel because it was desolate, so I will deal with you you shall be desolate, Mount Seir, and all Edom, all of it. Then they will know that I am the Lord. God will make his glory and his power known by dealing with the enemies of the people of God. And if you're dealing with someone or something that is hurting you and harming you and oppressing you, you can be sure that one day God will deal with it. But when God deals with it, it's not going to be pretty. Check out what Isaiah says earlier in his book when he talks about the fate awaiting Edom. This is Isaiah chapter 34. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them, and young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood, and their soil shall be gorged with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Like when God shows up to deal with the enemies of the Lord and the enemies of his people, it's not going to be an awesome day to be identified with the enemies of God's people. And so this is how Isaiah continues in chapter 63, right? We've asked two questions. Who is it? Where is this warrior coming from? But here's the third question. You see it right in the text. Why are your clothes red? Let's read the last five verses. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? 
I've trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their juice spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation. My wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Okay, so the watchman is asked, who are you? And now the watchman's like, okay, okay, let me ask another question. Why are your clothes red? And he, the guy was coming from Basra, so here was the assumption, because here, here's what Basra, the capital city of Edom, was known for. It was known for being a city where they had a lot of wine presses. And so they would take grapes and they would crush the grapes to get the juice to make grape juice or wine. And then as the grapes were being crushed, the spatter from the crushing would pop up and it would stain your garments red. And so the assumption was, okay, dude's walking over from Basra. His clothes are red because he went on a winemaking tour. Uh, But notice the answer. The answer in verse 3 is, my clothes are not red because I juiced grapes. It says in verse 3, their juice spattered on my garments. Their juice. So he uses the same Hebrew word for the juice of grapes to refer to the juice of people. Like, don't miss the horror of this. A few years ago, before I learned how to lose weight the right way, I went on one of those fad juicing diets. I don't know if you've ever tried that. I I wouldn't recommend it. But uh, for two weeks, I did nothing but drank the juice of fruits and vegetables. So I had to buy a juicing machine. And so I went to the store and just bought like pounds of fruits and vegetables. And so I'd have to like take these carrots and celery and apples and mangoes and all this stuff. And and you'd shove the fruits and veggies through the juicer and you'd get the juice you could drink, but the pulp that was left would kind of like spatter out the back. And have you ever wondered what would happen if you made a life-size juicer and ran a person through it? I hope you've never wondered that. If you have, you watch way too many horror movies. You should stop that. You're going to have some really bad dreams. But that's the picture that's here in this text. When the divine warrior says, their juice spattered my garments, here's what he's saying. He's saying the enemies of God are going to get run through the juicer of God. And he's going to pulverize them, and he's going to remove them, and there's going to be nothing left. Because when God fights his battles, his enemies stand no chance. So the divine warrior is coming back. and like, why are your clothes red? And he's like, I juiced the enemy. Not a super good day to be the enemy of God. Um, in verse 4, I want you to notice the contrast. The day of vengeance versus the year of redemption. God's judgment occupies a moment, but his blessing for his people after he removes evil is in this text for a year, but what does that mean? It means for a lifetime, for eternity, forever. When God gets rid of his enemies, he does it so that his people can live in a purified place under his protection without any worry of the polluting influence of sin ever coming back again. God gets rid of evil. I don't know what evil you're dealing with, but God says he's going to get rid of it. How is God going to get rid of this evil? Notice the first person language in verse 5 and then in verse 6. I looked, I was appalled, My own arm, my wrath, I trampled, I poured, I made them drunk. 
Who does this? Jesus Christ does this. See, we have this idea sometimes that we need to fight our enemies. And we sit around and we worry about how we're going to get through this hard situation that we're facing. And we wonder how we're going to deal with this person who is making our life so miserable. Or we read the news and we just freak out about how am I going to go on when all these people are trying to put in place all these plots and plans that are going to destroy my life. And I don't know how I'm going to live if I have to have an electric car and I don't have anywhere to charge it and I can't afford the battery for the electric car. And, and I just get myself all worked up and worried over all these things and all these enemies. And so I begin to think, here's what I need to do. I need to find a strong man who can go to Washington, D.C. and fight my battles for me. And I need someone who's gonna hate my enemies and scorn and mock my enemies. But can I tell you this? We don't need a strong man in Washington, D.C. because we have a strong man on the throne of heaven and his name is King Jesus. And one day, King Jesus is going to return and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And Exodus chapter 15, verse three, tells us the truth we can cling to. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Our God is a warrior and he will fight for us. And now check this out, check this out. The war is like nothing to him. We worry about how we're going to win the battle and in Isaiah chapter 63, the battle's already over. Like, Jesus doesn't need our strategic initiative. He doesn't need our battle plan. He's just like, I already did it for you. In fact, check this out. Revelation 19 is built on the foundation of Isaiah chapter 63. When John wants to tell us what the future is going to look like when God deals with sin once and for all, he uses the imagery of Isaiah chapter 63. Let me share with you some verses from Revelation 19. Here's what it says. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now here's what I love. When Isaiah is describing Jesus Christ coming to end history, when he's going to tread the wine press and juice his enemies. It says he has one weapon, and it's a sword coming out of his mouth. Because when Jesus goes to end history, the battle that Isaiah talks about is already completed will be fought with one word. That's why we sang the wonderful hymn this morning, One Little Word Shall Fell Him. We need not worry about all the schemes of those who array themselves in opposition against us. We need not worry about all the plots of our enemy Satan because God will crush him and destroy him with one single word. But hear this. When God comes to judge his enemies, we want to find ourselves united with King Jesus. That's why we sang this morning, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. 
Let me hide myself in thee. Because when the rock of ages comes to rock the world, we want to be hidden in the rock of ages so that his victory is our victory. So when we accept what Jesus has done on the cross and say, Lord Jesus, I want to be part of your people. Lord Jesus, you take my sin and crush it on the cross. Lord Jesus, you take the wrath that I deserve to bear. You take the cup that I deserve to drink. You take the crushing that I deserve to experience. And Jesus, you be crushed in my place on the cross. Then we are hidden in the rock of ages. And when the rock of ages comes, we share in his victory. When the rock of ages comes, we experience him not as the one who crushes us and removes us, but as the one who will rule with him and reign with him and come riding with him on the white horses to live in his glory forever. It is a great thing to be part of the people of God. This word is a beautiful word. It's a hopeful word to those who belong to Jesus Christ, but it's a word of warning to God's enemies. And if you're here this morning and you don't belong to Jesus, the scripture is clear. Either Jesus is crushed in your place or one day God will come crushing. Run to Jesus, cling to Jesus while the offer of repentance is still open. Before the cup of wrath is forced on you to drink, Let Jesus drink the cup of wrath in your place. I end by sharing some words from Reed Lessing in his commentary on Isaiah. I love how he describes this scene. He writes this, Before Jesus announces judgment, he receives judgment from the Father. Before he stains his garment with the blood of his enemies, he pours out his blood for the sins of the world. Before Jesus returns in anger and wrath at those who spurn his grace, he lovingly announces full pardon for all our sins. Before he uses his feet to trample out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored, he allows soldiers to spike those feet to wood where they writhe in pain until they go lifeless and limp. And after all that, there is one more enemy our Lord must face. His name, Edom. Edom stands for all the enemies of Christ, his gospel, and his church. They will soon come to their twisted and sordid end. And this includes Mr. Edomite himself, the serpent, the devil, Satan. Sin, death, and Satan will be trampled underfoot. The Garden of Eden will be restored and surpassed. And we can live in the pristine perfection of paradise forever. That is our divine warrior God who fights for us. Thank you for listening to the Highland Sermon Podcast. If you would like to learn more about Highland Community Church, please feel free to visit our website, www.highlandchurchmn.com. Our website link is also available in the show notes of today's episode, along with links to our social media pages. Thank you for listening, and always remember this, you are loved.